Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, as always, if you will get your Bibles open and be following along in the Word of God, you'll find that to be most beneficial and most helpful as we give our most reverent attention to the voice of God as expressed to us in Scripture. What a privilege it is for us to be together this morning on what is the final Sunday of 2020. And this year has certainly been a long and uh, trying and strange year that we might be inclined to just kind of write off as being awful and terrible and nothing good has come from this year. But that actually would not be true, would it? Our God throughout this year has continued to be faithful Our God has continued to bless us and shower us with those blessings in an abundant and awesome kind of way. And on top of all of that, despite the difficulties of 2020, we do have much to be thankful for and much to give God praise and glory for. And uh, we want to be uh, the people who are doing just that. You know, I have been reflecting considerably upon the past 12 months because today I am bringing to a close our preaching theme for 2020 as we have been talking for the last 12 months about marriage matters. We've had just the opportunity in a number of different occasions, I think today will mark the 14th time, to talk about marriage from a number of different angles uh, biblically and what the Bible has to say about the institution, the relationship between a husband and a wife. And in these last 12 months, we have covered just an awful lot of ground. Everything from the myth of super spouse when we began in January to talking about the specific roles that husbands and wives have, husbands in the role of leadership and headship and wives in the role of submission and respect. We've talked about forgiveness in marriage and the importance of that. We've looked at some Bible couples both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We've looked at the early stages of marriage. What do you do when the honeymoon phase wears off? And we've talked about some things toward the end of marriage when health and difficulties of the physical body make marriage difficult. We've talked about the sanctity of the marriage bed. In fact, come to think of it, I even preached one of these sermons from the bed of a pickup truck. That was a first. We've been able to explore several different facets of marriage as according to God's Word. And I want you to know that I have very much appreciated your attention this year, how much I have appreciated your encouragement and your feedback in these lessons. And if any of these lessons have been helpful for you, I want you to please know that they were mostly helpful for me. I am not an expert on how to be a husband I am not the prototype or the model of what it is to have a perfect marriage. I am very much learning on the job. And so I am very grateful that you have allowed me to stand before you and to speak so much about this important topic and even now during this 14th and final installment in the series. What if I could conclude this series by offering you a single Bible passage that if you follow it, if you plant it deeply in your heart and into your minds, that it will provide your marriage guaranteed happiness and longevity. Guaranteed. What if I could offer you a single passage that would do just that? What if I said that if you follow this verse, your wife will never accuse you of not loving her? That if you follow this verse, your husband will never accuse you of not respecting him? If you commit to following this passage, your wife will never call you lazy. 
Your husband will never call you a nag. You'll never have to worry about your wife submitting to your headship. You'll never have to worry about your husband abusing and throwing around his authority. If you as a couple commit to following what this passage says, all of your needs will be fulfilled. All of your dreams and realizable goals will be attained in marriage and that your home will be a place of peace and harmony and great joy. Would you believe me if such a verse exists? Did you know that such a passage exists? You might be thinking right now, Josh, okay, I'll bet it's Ephesians chapter 5. We talk about that verse an awful lot this year, verses 22 through 33. Talk so much about the marriage relationship. Maybe you're thinking of Genesis chapter 2, the beginning of the home. Maybe you're thinking about Matthew chapter 19. Jesus had some stuff to say about marriage. Maybe you're thinking about 1 Peter 3 when Peter said some practical things to wives and then to husbands. Or maybe we're even thinking about 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, and those wonderful descriptions of love. All of those passages provide wonderful guidance and direction for our marriage, and all of those are passages that we have covered at one point or another this year. But actually the passage that I'm offering you this morning is is none of those. It's a passage we haven't talked about this year. In fact, it's not even a marriage passage at all. It's actually a passage that specifically is talking about our relationships in the body of Christ. But I am persuaded that if we will lock in on this passage, if we will apply the principles of this passage into our marriage, then we will be guaranteed to have great marriages. You want to know what that passage is? It's Philippians, the second chapter, verses 3 and 4. In Philippians chapter 2, read with me, if you will, in verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is an unconventional marriage passage. We don't think of this verse very often in the context of marriage. I've not heard these verses read or discussed at any kind of wedding ceremonies before. Because in its context, it is designed to govern the relationships that we have as brothers and sisters within the body of Christ. But I got to thinking, if the Bible says that we ought to treat our brethren in this manner, then how much more to the one to whom we have vowed to love and to cherish, to have and to hold until death do we part. This is a passage that we need in marriage. And this morning, I want to just work Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I want to work it in such a way that it will become more firmly imprinted in our minds and in our hearts just as much as Ephesians 5 or any of those other famous marriage passages. Because I believe that in many ways, this text in Philippians 2, it actually encapsulates nearly everything that we've talked about this year, and it will help us in a powerful way if we'll let it. And that's the key. Let's just start by actually just kind of breaking the passage down, because it does seem that there are three main components in this passage. And that all begins with that first admonition where Paul says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In your marriage, Paul says, do how many things from rivalry or conceit? None. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 
We are to do nothing from selfish ambition, as some translations render that word. The Greek word here for selfish ambition or rivalry, it's actually a word that means the self-seeking pursuit of a political office. This has the tenor and the tone of campaigning and electioneering. It is the desire to put oneself forward. And Paul says that in your relationships, don't be doing that. Don't be doing anything from that kind of selfish motive, that kind of conceit. Let me maybe try to explain to you how that often manifests itself in marriage. Here's a couple who comes home and both the husband and the wife, they've both had a really long day working at whatever their jobs are. Maybe the husband works outside the home. Maybe the wife works inside the home. Maybe they both work outside the home. Whatever it is, they both get home from a long day and now, now there's some important task that needs to be completed. I'll use Tiffany and myself as an example. I come home from a long day working here and she's had a long day working at home with the kids and now we're presented with this monumental task. Gertie needs a diaper change. And now the question comes, who's going to take care of that task? Let me tell you what usually follows. What usually follows when confronted with that task is a long, arduous back and forth about who's done the most that day. Well, let me tell you, my job is harder. Let me tell you what I did today. No, 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 no. I've done all of this day. Well, you don't know the kind of day I had. And it's a back and forth, arguing, seesawing back and forth as we fuss and as we argue and as we try to put ourselves over as the one who has done the most. In fact, that kind of rivalry spirit, it's not just manifest in how we talk to each other. It's also manifest in how we talk about each other. Husband gets around some of his buddies, maybe from work or maybe even some of his brethren from church, and they start talking about marriage, and the husband says, let me tell you about my wife. Listen, I know I'm not perfect. I don't do everything right all of the time, but my wife, my wife does this, 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 and this, and man, let me just tell you. And ladies, guys aren't the only ones guilty of this. Ladies get around their girlfriends and have a tendency to do the same thing, start talking about marriage, and oh, let me tell you about my husband. Again, I know I'm not perfect. I don't do everything right all of the time. I'm not professing to be a perfect person. But do you know what my husband does? Let me tell you what I have to deal with practically day in and day out. Do you see what's going on there when we do that kind of thing? It's almost like it's a competition, that it's a, it's a rivalry. It's like this campaign where I'm trying to get everybody over to my side. And I'm presenting the case for why I am the anchor in this relationship and my spouse, my spouse is the one who keeps dragging us down. Paul says in this passage emphatically, don't do that. That is rivalry. It is conceit. It is putting yourself forward. And that will be a recipe for an unhappy marriage. Instead, Paul says, he says in humility, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Can you just stop and think about that for a moment? Think about that word others that's used there. Maybe the thing to do would be to actually just replace the word others with the name of your spouse. You ever thought about doing that? Putting your spouse's name in that passage? Putting your spouse in the name of others there? What about that? 
Instead of viewing yourself as the one who is the most important person in the relationship, as being the one who is providing the most benefit to this relationship, the one who is worthy of the most honor in your marriage, Paul says you need to actually see your spouse in that light. Your spouse is the most important partner in the relationship. And the question is, do you see him or her in that way? Furthermore, not only do you see your spouse in that way, but do you make them feel as if they are the more significant person in the relationship? This is where speaking words of praise and honor really come into play. That is that we tell our spouse just how significant they are to us. And not only do we tell them, but maybe we even take that a step further and we tell others how significant our spouse is to us. I'll go ahead and confess to you something that this passage said to me as I was reading it, as I was thinking about it in the context of marriage, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. This passage said, Josh, you are not as important as you think you are. But your spouse is incredibly important. Tiffany is incredibly important to your marriage. This passage is saying to me and it's saying to you, it's saying to all of us, do you know how many times your spouse has been upset with you and they had rightful reason to be upset with you? And if they were just worldly, they could have just packed all their stuff and said, I'm out of here, I'm done with this. But yet they stuck by you. And they stuck with the relationship. And they were determined to make it work. You know what you need to do? You need to honor them for that. Your spouse is what has made your marriage last as long as it has. That's true. Because your spouse is the one who's put up with all of your faults and all of your failures and all of your foolishness and has remained committed to that relationship and making it work. And for that reason alone, he or she needs to be regarded as more significant than yourself. Which leads into that third and last part of the passage, and that is... That is, that we need to not just look out for your own interest, but Paul says you also need to be looking out for the interests of others. And once again, you see that word others there in verse 4. Just replace that with the name of your husband or your wife. That is, you make what is important to your spouse, you make that important to you. I'm afraid that far too often in our marriages, we often try to conform our spouses to what we want. Well, I tell you what, if my spouse would just do all of these things that I want to do, things would just be so much better between us. Actually, that's not so. That's just not true. That's not actually how that's going to work. You want to know what's going to make your marriage better? What will make your marriage better is if you started treating your spouse's interest as being more important and elevated above your own. Does your husband like to fish? Well, ladies... Maybe it's time to get a rod and reel and get out there and learn how to fish and go fishing with him sometime. Does your wife like to garden? Gentlemen, maybe it's time to get a green thumb and get out there in the dirt and get a little bit dirty and work in the garden a little bit with her. You find out what interests your spouse and then you try to become interested in that thing too. Is it important for your wife that you call her if you're going to be late? Then what should you do? You should pick up the phone and call her. Is it important to your husband that you not leave dirty socks laying around on the floor? Then pick those dirty socks up off the floor. Now, we may not always understand why our spouse thinks the way that they do, why they like the things that they like, why it is that they have the quirks that they have. 
But we need to consider them. We need to consider what it is that is most important to them. You've maybe heard before of the five love languages. That was a well-known best-selling book that was put out several years ago, and I actually think a lot of the content of that book has a lot of biblical backing and merit to it. And I think what Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 is saying to us is that we need to actually learn our spouse's love language. Is it important for your spouse to receive some words of affirmation from time to time? If that's important to them, then Philippians 2 verse 4 says, I'm going to give them those words of affirmation. Is it important for your spouse to have quality time spent with you? Well, if that's what's important to them, then I'm going to carve that time out and I'm going to give that to them. Is it important for your spouse to be shown affection, physical touch? Then Philippians 2 verse 4 says, then I'm going to make sure that I give that to them. Whatever the case may be, whenever we make those things important to us, then that is the very definition of looking out, not only for our own interest, but also for the interest of others. These three interconnected ideas then, they really provide the basis, the platform for a great and God-honoring relationship. And I am convinced that if we will practice these things in our marriage that it will make our relationships better. And here's why. Let me show you from Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 how this passage helps to accomplish marital harmony and why I think it's just just an undersold and underappreciated passage in the marriage discussion. First and foremost, this passage helps to replace selfishness with service. Of course, the consummate example of what it means to serve and to do that in a selfless manner would be Jesus, wouldn't it? In fact, what Paul writes here in verses 3 and 4 just sets up the things that he's going to say in the next few verses, verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. Paul says that Jesus came to this world, emptied Himself, gave Himself up so that He could become a servant so that He could be selfless and He could serve you and I. Jesus went to the cross and served us. And that is the kind of attitude that you and I are called upon to cultivate in our lives as being disciples of Jesus. We, in turn, are to become servants. And yet all too often what happens is is we enter into marriage with the expectation that this new person that I'm marrying, well, they're going to serve me. They're going to provide some benefit to me. They're going to serve me. But that's not their job. The serving is not the job of my spouse. Serving is the job of me. My job is to serve them. And that's why instilling the spirit of Philippians chapter 2 into our lives, it is so key. Because it removes that me first mentality. It removes selfishness and it replaces it with a service mentality. Just answer me this simple question. Would you appreciate your spouse more if they replace selfishness with service? Well, sure you would. We all would appreciate that a whole lot more. Not just in marriage, but in every relationship. If people were more serving and less selfish, man, we would just appreciate them more. We would grow to love them even more. Everybody would appreciate that. Well, guess what? Your spouse feels the exact same way about you. 
Your spouse believes that it would be so much better and so much easier to be a servant to you if you would be a servant to them. Can I tell you something about in the marriage relationship? One of you has to start. And the Bible doesn't even specify as to who's to start that process. But somebody has to get it started. And since this passage in Philippians chapter 2, 3, and 4 is a command given to you, then why don't you go ahead and be the one to get it started? Philippians, the second chapter, it is pushing us to greater levels of servanthood even in our marriage. And furthermore, secondly, this passage helps to provide understanding in our marriage. Have you ever heard that old statement about people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care? That statement it may not be universally true in every situation and in every context, but I think generally speaking it is true. And in marriage, I think it is especially true. Your spouse wants to know how much you care. And this right here is perhaps evident just the most whenever you seek to understand your spouse. That is, when you are showing interest in the things that are important to your spouse, that communicates to them empathy. I talked at length about empathy a couple of Sunday nights ago. You are trying to understand. 1 Peter chapter 3 actually commands husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. That you are trying to understand where they're coming from. You're trying to understand what it is that makes them upset. You're trying to understand what it is that makes them happy. You've put in some hard work to understand what it is that makes them tick, what it is that they care about. That understanding comes whenever we are practicing Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. When we have shifted the focus off of self, selfish ambition, and we are regarding our spouse as more significant than ourselves. Which brings me to that third thing that this passage does, and that is that this passage grants significance. You know, none of us in our lives, whether you're married or not, none of us wants to toil in insignificance. None of us wants that, do we? None of us wants to work really hard at something in our life and just feel at the end of all of that 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 just didn't amount to anything. There wasn't really a whole lot of point to that. That just didn't do any good. No, what we want is we want to feel important. We want to know that the things that we are doing, the things that we are laboring so hard to do, we want to know that those things made a difference somewhere to somebody somehow. And one of the greatest things that we have the opportunity to do in marriage is to help our spouse to see and recognize their own significance. And I want to be clear, this idea of granting significance, this isn't about you know, just giving somebody a frivolous ego boost. No, this is about showing your husband or showing your wife that they are important, that what they do in marriage is important, that their contribution to the relationship, what they bring to the home, it is significant, it is of value. This is about even increasing their confidence in the role that they are called to play in marriage. John Maxwell, who's a well-known author and speaker, he tells a story in one of his books about a guy who was the dean of a college. And he was introducing a new uh, faculty member 
uh, to all of the other faculty members. A new person was being hired on as a professor, and so before they got started, he took them around to all of their new co-workers and colleagues and introduced them and let them know who they would be working with. And as he introduced each person and as he described what each, person position, each person's position was, the receptionist in the main office of the college, she overheard him say that her position was the very most important position. And when the receptionist heard that, she began to blush and she interjected in what the dean was saying and she said, no, 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 I'm, I, I, I'm not that important. I, I just answer the phone. And the dean then replied to her and he said, oh, on the contrary. He said, without you, this school wouldn't exist. Every new student who contacts this school, they talk to you first. And if they don't like you, then they'll not like this school. And if they don't like this school, they'll not come to this school. And if we don't have students at the school, we'll have to close it up. And when the receptionist heard that, she just kind of perked up a little bit. And she said, wow, I'd, I'd never thought of it that way. And the dean said from that day forward, she just kind of had a way of sitting up a little bit taller behind her desk when she answered the phone. And she had a greater uh, kind of sense of confidence about her as she did her work. Do you see what significance grants, what that does for someone? Your spouse wants to feel important. And it is your job as their spouse to help them to realize just how important they are, that their role, that their contributions is indispensable to the home. And it is your job to communicate that to them and to let them know that. Because the more confidence that each partner has in the relationship, as each partner is fulfilling their job and their role, then the tighter and the stronger and just the well, more well-oiled machine your marriage becomes over time. The man has more and more confidence to lead and the woman has more and more confidence to graciously submit and encourage his leadership, which just gives him more confidence to lead and gives her more confidence to submit. And the marriage gets better and better and better. Do you see? Do you see how Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 helps to create marital harmony? That's because fourthly, Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, it helps to breed trust and mercy. You know, you can't fully understand Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 without also reading a companion passage in James chapter 3. Would you step out of Philippians for just a moment? Look in James chapter 3. In James the third chapter, James discusses a lot of the same concepts that Paul talked about in those two verses in Philippians. And he actually builds upon them. He kind of fleshes them out a little bit more. In James chapter 3, I'm reading here beginning in verse 13. In James 3 and in verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there's that rivalry and conceit stuff. If you have those things in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic even. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. Think about what that verse is saying. That when you have that rivalry and conceit and selfish ambition, disorder. Your home will be a mess. Your marriage will never be in order in the way it's supposed to be. Verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, 
impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you see that phrase in verse 17, full of mercy? When I am filled with rivalry and conceit and selfish ambition, there is no mercy. Mercy is absent. There's no thought of doing something for the other person. No, it's only about me. But whenever Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, whenever that is the governing principle, then, well, then there will be lots of mercy. There will be mercy in abundance. And let's be honest, if ever there was a place where mercy is going to be needed, it's in marriage. Because despite my best efforts, despite your best efforts to apply the message of this sermon, to apply the message of all the sermons that we've talked about this year, despite those efforts, I'm not going to do that perfectly. There will be mistakes made along the way. There will be lapses that will occur. I will act selfishly from time to time. I will not consider my spouse's needs as often as I should. I will say hurtful things. I will do dumb stuff. But you know what? In a home where Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, where that is the rule, when that is the rule in our home and it's not the exception, then what will happen is is my spouse will have a reserve of trust and mercy that they can draw from whenever I make those mistakes. They will be ready and they will be able to forgive because there is a concern, there is an interest for the other person. This isn't about, well, what am I going to get out of this? He, he owes me an apology or he needs to do all of this kind of stuff for me. No, instead, I'll be thinking about what is best for the other person. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 helps to ensure that that mercy account, it's closer to full than it is closer to empty. Just like fifthly, This passage also helps us to put a stop to hypocrisy in our marriages. If you're still there in James, look in verse 17 again, where James says that when you remove selfish ambition from the picture, then you can have the wisdom from above. Notice, first of all, he says that wisdom is pure. And then look at the end of the verse. He says it is also sincere, pure, sincere. Those are the things that are the exact opposite of hypocrisy. And that is so needed in marriage. Because far too many times, hypocrisy bubbles under the surface and it goes unchecked in the relationship. Can I illustrate that for you? I'll use my own marriage as an example. For the majority of mine and Tiffany's marriage, uh, I have been the one who has been the main person responsible for taking care of our finances. I was the one who would keep up with the money in our bank accounts. I was the one who would take care of paying the bills. I was the one who would kind of be the ultimate decider on how much money could be spent at a given time on given things. Which means then that if Tiffany decided that she wanted to splurge a little bit on something for herself or maybe even something for the girls, I would usually be quick to express my displeasure about that. What do you mean? You spent how much money on that dress? What are, you, what are you thinking? Or what are you wasting money on going to a parlor and getting your nails done? I mean, we could, we could do that for free at home. Why do you need to do that? Why do we need to spend money on that? But you know what? The issue has never been that we didn't have the money to spend on those things. It's just that those things were not important to me. I didn't care about that dress. I didn't care about her getting her nails done. And the sad reality is, almost really without even realizing it, is that I was being hypocritical. Because the things that I felt were important, 
The things that I felt were needful to spend money on, like, like my new tablet, or like another pair of tennis shoes for me. Those things that I was convinced, oh yes, I need this. In fact, I can give you a really good explanation for why I need this thing. Actually, actually those things weren't all that needful. And they really weren't any more important than the things that she had spent some money on. But when I stop and I try to consider things through the lens of Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, when I am counting my wife as more significant than myself, when I am looking not only to my own interest, but I'm also looking to her interest, that helps to drive hypocrisy out. That helps to push insincerity out of the picture when Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 is being observed. Because finally, when Philippians 2, 3 and 4 is being observed, what that does best of all is it communicates love in a very clear manner. You know, not everyone communicates love and not everyone perceives love in the same way. You know, for some people, you can say to them, I love you. You can say those words, maybe even write them down on a piece of paper. You can say it with your voice a hundred times in a day and at the end of the day, that person will still in their mind think, they don't love me. They don't really love me. On the other hand, for some people, if you very rarely say the words, I love you, but you instead wash the dishes or you remember to put the toilet seat down or some other act of kindness, then that person knows and they can see that you love them. We're all very different in how we register and how we process love. And chances are your spouse, maybe as compatible as you may be, chances are your spouse is probably very different and how they communicate love, and how they perceive love than you do. And, and that can be frustrating. Because you could be the guy who goes to your wife and says, I love you, I love you, I love you, a million times, and it doesn't seem like that's really getting through. And you feel like you're kind of beating your head against a wall. What do I got to do to show her that I love her? Well, the good news is, when you are removing rivalry and conceit, when you are regarding your spouse as more significant than yourselves, when you are looking to their interest and not just to your own interest, the good news is that figuring out how to communicate love to your spouse, it'll just come naturally. You will learn it. Because when you're doing what this passage says, you don't have to spin your wheels trying to figure out what it is that your spouse really loves, what their love language is. No, it'll be evident to you. It'll be evident because you're making what's important to them important to you. You will then be equipped to demonstrate, to actually do something to love him or to love her in exactly the way that they need to see it and the way that they need to hear it and the way that they need to feel it. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. It helps us. It helps us in so many ways. It helps us to communicate love in a very clear manner. Now, when you step back and you see all the things that this passage does, it's not hard for us to understand why it is that these verses need to become an integral part of each and every marriage. Maybe these verses are already a part of your marriage. Hopefully these ideas will help us to make them even more a part of our marriage. However, I need to close with one final word, and it's a word of caution. I need to say something that you must absolutely not do. Otherwise, this whole sermon is a bust, and everything that Paul says in this passage is a bust. Because if you've been listening this morning, you're reading these verses, and you're thinking to yourself, boy, 
I sure hope my spouse is listening to this. I sure hope they're hearing what they need to hear. Then that's a fail. Because you must not, you must not take this passage home and use it to attack your spouse. You must not take this passage home and say, did you hear what the preacher said today? Did you hear what the Apostle Paul said today in Philippians chapter 2? You are not, you are not supposed to be having rivalry and conceit. You are supposed to treat me with more significance. You are not to look out for your own interest. You're also to look out for my interest. Did you pay attention to what was being said to you? If you have listened to this sermon today and you have thought to yourself of all of the various ways that they need to do better, all the various ways that they need to straighten up, then not only have you missed Paul's point in Philippians 2, but more importantly, you are actually playing a very destructive role in the very destruction of your marriage. And when you do that, that is your fault. Philippians 2, listen clearly, Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, it says absolutely nothing to your spouse. But it says everything to you. Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 is about your responsibility. It's about what you must give. It's about your attitude. It's about what you must do. And if you have failed in some way to living up to the teaching of this passage, then what that means is, is that means that you need to repent. And that means that you need to go to your spouse and you need to apologize for your failures. And then you... You need to make good on that apology. And then you need to start doing what Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 says regardless of what your spouse does or does not do. When you do that, that will improve your marriage. In fact, even more fundamentally, that will improve you as a Christian. Now in just a moment, we're going to be led in the song that's been selected as a song of invitation. It is a song inviting you to surrender and to submit your life to Jesus the Christ, to be obedient to Him in the waters of baptism. If there's someone here today who has yet to take those steps, we are encouraging you to do just that. And the reason we're encouraging you to do just that is because of what Paul teaches in Philippians chapter 2. And that is that Jesus the Christ came to this earth and He set forth the perfect example of what it is to serve others, to look out for the interest of others, to treat others as more significant than Himself. Jesus gave everything in order to save you and in order to save me from sin. If you've yet to surrender yourself to the Lord of Lords and to the King of Kings, we are imploring you through the words of this song to begin doing that today. Let us assist you in becoming a Christian. If you are a Christian but you've not been serving the Lord as you ought, brother or sister, we need to get back to just the fundamentals. The fundamentals of what it means to submit, what it means to obey, what it means to be a servant. And if we can help you to repent and to turn the corner this very day to serve the Lord in a better way, then we're ready and willing to assist you in doing just that. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to come to the front and make that known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.